We invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, the third book in the Bible. The series, this Advent series is Christ in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, taking them in the order. And so here we come to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 12 is the sermon text. Before we hear God's word read, let's go to him again in prayer, asking for his help. Father, thank you for your spirit. You know how dependent upon him we truly are. We pray now that the spirit would help us to understand and apply this inspired text to our souls. Amen. This is Leviticus chapter 12. Hear now the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for sixty-six days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Presentations are matters of great historical moments. Children, perhaps you have seen the movie The Lion King. The start of the movie begins with the catchy song, The Circle of Life. And as you listen to the song, watch the movie, you watch all of the animals in the kingdom headed somewhere. Birds have taken flight. The giraffes and elephants are walking together. Ants scurry on the trees, and the zebras prance over to Pride Rock. They make their way eventually to this place, and high above we see Mufasa and his wife and their child. The monkey Rafiki cracks open a fruit, places its juice on the cub's forehead, and slaps a little dust on the child as well. He walks with the cub to the edge of a cliff and raises the child Simba heavenward. All of the animals below are uttering noises of joy, submission, reverence to this one-day king. The child will one day be the ruler of all that the light touches. But not all presentations of great moment have the display of pomp and circumstance. Indeed, this morning we see the presentation of a real lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
But his presentation is not one that drew the crowds. It isn't one that, that had all the people in God's kingdom come at the temple. It was a rather humble presentation, but oh so needful. Essential, even, because the Christ child was consecrated at the temple to open up the heavenly temple for Christ's children. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. An Advent message from the book of Leviticus. Absolutely. Truly, there is so much more to this book and to this particular chapter than first meets the eye. It is rich. It is robust. It is spiritual, uppercase S, spiritual. And this chapter is foundational for the next several chapters in Leviticus, but we'll have to wait for that series in Leviticus for another time. Now, if you paid attention to the New Testament reading this morning, then you already have an idea of where this text leads us. But we mustn't get ahead of ourselves. We must see how Leviticus 12 fits in the context of ancient Israel, what it is about. We read again, verse 2, this language of impurity, of uncleanness. Verse 2 says, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And so a woman gives birth, she becomes unclean in the delivery. She becomes ceremonially impure. This language of impurity, of uncleanness, does not strictly refer to the person's status as a sinner. After all, all of Leviticus assumes that every Israelite, indeed every human being, excepting Christ, everyone is a sinner. And the book of Leviticus is a a book of grace. It is a book that God has graciously given to ancient Israel that they might gain or regain admission into his blessed presence. It is a book of God's giving the means by which his people can come, even come boldly into his presence. And so this language of impurity or uncleanness means that you were not allowed, as long as you were impure, as long as you were unclean, you were not allowed to be in the corporate presence of God, sometimes called the assembly of the people. It means that you were, for a period of time, barred from corporate worship until you were then declared clean, and you had the proper sacrifice atoning for your impurity. Now, parents, you remind your children to wash their hands, do you not? especially after they go to the bathroom. Especially if right after the the bathroom, the next place is the dinner table where you will all come together and eat a fine meal. Those hands better be washed. Those hands are unclean. Literally, they are unclean. And the language of uncleanness and impurity when it has to do with our body parts is also supposed to point us to a greater, a deeper issue That is to say, of spiritual impurity, of spiritual uncleanness, crying out for someone to offer the cure. So how much more shall the Israelites be clean if they're going to, at times, eat with their Lord and come into the Lord's presence? God, who is holy, holy, 
holy, who is pure and undefiled. And so what we see in this text is a short, in this short and important chapter, we see that God has three phases in order for the woman to become clean and then to be brought back into his presence. There's a start, there's a, there's a second, and then there's a series of offerings. If the mother produces a male child, she is unclean for seven days. And if she produces a female child, she is unclean for 14 days. And after those seven days, there is an eighth day. On the eighth day, or on the 15th day, in the case of the daughter, the woman goes through this initial purification. Her body is naturally losing this kind of delivery blood, if you will, this blood of labor. After the male is circumcised on the eighth day, or after the 14 days in the case of a daughter, the woman then enters this phase of impurity for 33 days in the case of a male, or 66 days in the case of a female. And after the 40 days for a male, or 80 days for a female, then we have a series of offerings being made. There is the, what the text says, sin offering, or Better language would be the purification offering. And this offering was done to remove the woman's impurity from the tabernacle and its holy furniture, as well as the mother's own impurity. This sacrificial offering was to be a single pigeon, or, as we see, it could also be a turtle dove. That's one offering that is to be made. There's also the burnt offering. This covers the mom's general sinfulness. The burnt offering is the default offering because of our own sinfulness, because we are not holy, holy, holy. But along with this burnt offering comes an expression of gratitude to return to the house of the Lord by means of his grace. The sacrificial offering, as we see in this text, if it can be afforded, is a year-old lamb, spotless lamb. So we have a three-phase process. Why the three-phase process? It was carried out to highlight that all impurity has been properly and thoroughly cleansed. Number three, often pointing to completion, perfection. The process was to ensure that all that was unclean was now eradicated. It was done away with. And I'm sure some of you are wondering, why the difference of days in the case of a daughter? Well, as you read the text, you see that the text does not tell us. And nowhere in Scripture does it explain why there is that total of 80 days for the daughter, whereas there's 40 days for the son But we can say that it is not because the female is supposedly inferior or not made in the image of God. This has been well established from the book of Genesis. Male and female, he created them in his image. And so males and females alike are equally made in the image of God. Some have suggested that what is likely going on here is that two females are involved. And so a doubling of days would seem natural, 80 days. But we must remember 
God's own words to the woman in Genesis 3.16 that he would multiply her pain in childbirth. We wonder, could this then be one manifestation of the curse that is worked out in the Levitical system as a reminder that the curse does affect the woman as well and affects her to her core as, as, as mother of giving birth? Well, that's the process. But what's the purpose? Why go through this somewhat elaborate process of purification? Well, one thing is it's not because of the child's impurity. Nowhere does this text say that the child is unclean. Children, though they are born sinners, are blessings from God. And so here we do not have an example of parents being punished for doing the very thing that they are commanded to do, namely be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. At the end of the section, we see, says that she, the mother, shall be clean. And so it wasn't because of the child's impurity, but it was by reason of the blood, as mentioned in verse 7. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. And so it wasn't childbirth itself that defiled. Childbirth is a good thing. There would, there would be childbirth even if there had been no fall. It was the increase of pain that, that was added to childbirth because of the fall. So it's not childbirth itself that defiled, but it was the outflow of this foreign blood. Mysteriously, Profoundly, as those two adverbs often go together, blood in the Bible either defiles someone or it does away with the defilement. This woman's blood, we see, should not be in the tabernacle. It should not be later on in the temple. It should not be even in the camp itself. As Leviticus 15.31 says, everyone, everyone with a discharge is to keep away from the altar. Not just bloody discharge, but all kinds of discharges. And I'll spare you those details. You'll, you see them in Leviticus 15. The woman's blood, as mentioned twice in this text, resembles that of a menstruating woman. Verse 2 says, as in her menstruation. First red, then grows to a brown, then a pale color, and this could last weeks. The, the, the color change and the, the reduced quantity was God's natural way of indicating that there is a restoration. There was a, a purifying, a cleansing. And we're reminded, aren't we, of, of that hemorrhaging woman who boldly approached Jesus and who touched the hem of his garments and whose blood kept her away from the temple. She did not merely come near the word of God that tabernacled among them. She touched him. She touched the word of God. She touched the one who came from above and dwelt among us, full of grace, full of truth. She touched the Christ himself. And if you know that story, what happened? Was the Christ defiled? Absolutely not. And did she remain unclean? Praise be to God, she did not. Such is the power of the pure Lamb of God to cleanse both externally and internally the person. 
purpose of this purification was because of barred access, as I had mentioned. The blood of that woman and the blood of every mother in Israel who just gave birth disbars her temporarily from the blessed special presence of God in the assembly. Because, of her, because her very bloody presence threatened the purity of the altar, she must stay out. The blood of the purification offering then cleansed the altar because of the woman's blood. The only blood acceptable in the sight of God was the sacrificial blood. And in this case, it was to be the blood of a lamb or the blood of two turtle doves or pigeons. At this point, you might be thinking, uh, I'm glad that I don't have to go through that. You might now be thanking the Lord that you do not have to follow that or, or your wife doesn't have to follow that. And it would be right for you to thank the Lord that you don't have to go through that 40-day process or 80-day process, especially since that's over a month or almost three months of not being in the corporate presence of God. But imagine if that were still relevant today. Imagine the effect that law would have on, on you and on your own heart. Would you be anxiously waiting to return Thank, or thankful for a month off from the assembly of God? Hopefully you would be sorrowful that there would be this anxious waiting. I cannot wait until day 40. I cannot wait until day 80. Because then I get to hear the word of God preached. Then I get to be with my brothers and sisters corporately, hearing his word, singing praises to him, having the Lord's Supper. All of the means of grace that God pours out upon his people. But of course by God's grace, by Christ fulfilling even this law, we don't have these restrictions on us. These are not stipulations for us for childbirth. Nevertheless, we see as many applications. Application for persons who are under the law. The law was given to those born under the law of God. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Paul, of course, here has Christ in mind, as born of woman, as born under the law. And we are all born of woman. We are all born under the law of God. Didn't the law's demands hold over you God's demand of perfection? One of the things we see in Leviticus is that the do this and live principle. If you do this, if you obey all of God's law, then you will live. And so one blessing of Leviticus is you can't do it all. But God has graciously provided a way. And some might say today that God no longer demands perfection. This is an era of grace. 
And so no longer is perfection the standard. But remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 48, Be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is too holy to reduce his standard of perfection because we can't measure up to it. He doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't give you credit for trying. You can't say, well, he he looks into your heart and, and sees, really, it's the thought that counts. No, he looks at the thoughts of the heart and he says, every intention of the thought of man was only evil continually. So yes, God still requires perfection. He still demands it. But he was the one to provide it. You do not work out perfection in your life. He has given you his son, his perfect, spotless lamb, righteousness, himself. Galatians 4, 5. Again, God sent forth his son, but why? To redeem those who are born under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ was born of woman, born under the law, so that we who are under law might be redeemed from that law. That we might become sons. We who were formerly children in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, have been transferred into the blessed kingdom of the Son, kingdom of light. And have all the privileges of that father-son relationship. And we receive all the spiritual blessings that come from God above. And not only the blessings, but the one that the blessings point to. Not only the gifts, but the giver. Not only justification, sanctification, but he who is our justification. He who is our sanctification, Christ himself. And so the law-abiding mother of Jesus, Mary, and her just husband, Joseph, did what the law commanded. They brought baby Jesus to the temple for her purification and for his presentation. And he had been circumcised. And he was now being presented to the temple. And the law of Moses was being kept. From Christ's first cry of circumcision... To his final cry of crucifixion, he kept the law of God. His full law-keeping from start to finish, dear ones, means the gift of righteousness for you and me who trust in him. Not only does this text apply for persons who are under law, but persons who are rich or poor. Now, whether the Israelite was poor or rich, she could regain access Financially, she might have been well off, and if she was well off, she would offer a year-old lamb for the burnt offering, as we see. But not everyone can afford that year-old lamb. And so God makes a way through a second bird. If you can't afford that lamb, then just add one more turtle dove or pigeon. And so what is clear here is that God cared more for the offerant than for the offering. He cared more for the person who was offering than for the the means by which that person would come back into the presence of God. Remember, the offering was a means to an end. This is God's gracious way of getting the Israelite back into his blessed presence. Leviticus is not a book that says, get out of here. It's you're impure, you're unclean, and here's how you get back in. See your unholiness. See the holiness of God. 
and see at the same time the grace of God. Mary and Joseph, based on the offering they bring, were not well off. They could offer only two turtle doves. There's no pomp, just just pigeons. No circumstance, just silent obedience. There were no onlookers except the Father above smiling upon his law-abiding children and upon his beloved Son. But not only is this for those who are financially rich or poor, but spiritually. What does this remind us of? But Jesus' pronouncement of blessing, his beatitude on the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you had been an Israelite family, maybe now you could have afforded a lamb. Maybe you do not have a second or anxious thought today about your money. But woe to those financially secure, but outside now in eternal security in Christ. And blessed are we who see our spiritual poverty and who come to the waters without any money and who lean upon the Father's everlasting arms of grace. We have that pronouncement of blessing upon us when we acknowledge that we are truly sinners in desperate need of someone to provide what we lack. For what do we come with but righteousness filthier than menstrual cloths? And oh, oh, how we so desperately need the blood of the righteous Holy One of Israel. And so this text applies to those who are rich and poor, but also, and finally, to persons in need of new life. Ultimately, Jesus is presented to give us new life. In Israel, with the purification complete, the hope and joy of new life hovers over this little child. The question becomes, will this Israelite boy be an arrow that is tipped with poison? Or will he be covered in holiness, be a blessing? And we ask of Jesus, will the Christ child bring consolation to Israel? Will he be a light to the nations? Well, Leviticus 12, 3 says, On the eighth day, the flesh of the boy's foreskin is circumcised. And as I read in Luke 2, 21, this is exactly what happens to baby Jesus on the eighth day. And have you ever wondered why the eighth day? After all, isn't number seven the number of perfection? Indeed it is. And yet the theme of eight covers the landscape of life as God's waters cover the sea. Students of Scripture have seen the significance of eight days, of the eighth day, and have seen its applications in a variety of ways. Robert Haldane, in his book on the Sabbath, applies the eighth day to the Lord's day. The eighth day was the first of a new series. Seventh day being complete, then we have the eighth day, the beginning of new things. It is applied well, as I said, to the practice of the Lord's Day, but as, as the eighth and as, the, as now the new day, but we see in Scripture its application that's relevant to our own text this morning, to the deep and mighty work of God. The firstborn of the cattle were to be given to the Lord on the eighth day. 
It was on the eighth day that Aaron and the priest's consecration was complete. On the eighth day, if someone was uh, impure because of leprosy, on the eighth day, that leprosy was taken away, was cleansed. On the eighth day, atonement was made for that Nazarite who happened to become defiled for whatever reason. On the eighth day, the temple of Solomon was dedicated. The sheaf of the first fruits was to be brought to the priest on the eighth day. The year of Jubilee was the 50th year. It was not the 49th year, the last of sabbatical years. It was the 50th, the eighth. No wonder then that Jesus, when, when he was raised from the dead, appeared to his disciples on the eighth day. He presented himself to his disciples as he was presented to the Father here on the eighth day. Why? To usher in newness of life. For that is what his circumcision, that is to say, his crucifixion brought. That is what his spirit-empowered exaltation, that is to say, his resurrection provided. And this is exactly what we would expect from the seed of the woman, is it not? And here in verse 1 is another allusion to Genesis 3.15. Because this language conceives. If a woman conceives and bears a male child, this literally means if a woman produces a seed. If she produces a male seed. Here again is the promised seed of the woman who would one day crush Satan. In God's perfect working out of all things, although Mary could not afford a new lamb, she nevertheless provided the lamb. The spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this lamb's humble start will proceed in humility as he is high and lifted up on that cross. Make no mistake, dear ones. He who is humbled shall be exalted. As it was the Father who brought low his Son. Now, through the resurrection, the Father he raises his only begotten Lion of the tribe of Judah from the dead. He lifts him heavenward and has seated him at his right hand, where the Son now reigns forever and ever, a world without end. Do you need deliverance from the law's demands? We all do. Do you see yourself spiritually bankrupt in need of a righteousness beyond your imagination? Oh, I pray that you do see it. And do you need newness of life? Then come and worship. Come and worship the newborn king. Let's pray. Our Father, how gracious we see you in this text. How gracious we see you in the fulfillment of this text by giving us your only begotten Son, our Lamb, cleanses us from all our sin. We thank you for this gift. We pray that we would continue to depend upon him for all of life and godliness. In his name we pray, amen.